Section 4 of The Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. An Instructive Object Lesson, Parts 3 through 5. Part 3. It will hardly now be wondered at that, pressed by these difficulties, the school beat a retreat. A. Ritchell, at first an expounder of its critical views, he wrote to prove that Marcian's mutilated Gospel of Luke was probably the original, a position afterwards surrendered, gradually broke with its positions, and finally, in 1857, in the second edition of his book on the origin of the old Catholic Church, wrote one of the ablest refutations of it. The full extent, however, of the breach of critical scholars with this once-honored school is only seen when we come down to recent times. On the actual situation, I shall cite a few sentences from one who will not be regarded as unduly biased towards conservatism, Professor A. S. Peake of the University of Manchester. In a recent inaugural lecture on The Present Movement of Biblical Science, Mr. Peake signalizes as one of the two features in recent New Testament introduction, the general break with the Tubingen tradition. He remarks, all that profound learning and brilliant genius could do for the theory was done by Bauer and the band of scholars he'd gathered round him. But, as is well known, this criticism has not held its ground. In the first place, it rested too much on a theory of what the history must have been not to have presented a distorted statement of what it actually is. In the next place, the radical criticism of Bauer has been almost entirely abandoned by those who would now be regarded as radical critics. The theory is taken piecemeal, and almost all its contentions are shown to be now surrendered, e.g., with the exception of Hilgenfeld, practically all critics are agreed that Mark is the earliest of the synoptists. In other words, what Bauer declared to be the latest because of the most neutral of the Gospels is now placed first of all. The theory entertained by this school as to the Acts of the Apostles has also been abandoned, the conciliatory tendency which was detected in it is seen to have been greatly exaggerated. It is added, Apart from this abandonment of Bauer's New Testament criticism, there are other objections to the theory which have contributed to its surrender. In short, no shred is left that one can discern of the Tubingen theory at all. The few scholars that adhere to it, as Van Manen, have developed its criticism into an extremely negative form leaving not a single New Testament writing to its traditional author. Their exploits, the delirium of hypercriticism, awaken only amazement. I agree, but wonder in turn that Mr. Peake, in view of all this, should write as confidently as he does of assured results in the field of Old Testament criticism. Part 4. Later Discussions The Tubingen tradition is broken, but we have not yet reached the end of our developments. To abandon Bauer's view of Luke's gospel, and of the book of Acts, was not yet to admit Luke's authorship of these two works, or to concede to them a high historical value. It was a great step in advance when Professor W. M. Ramsey of Aberdeen, himself formerly an adherent of the Tubingen school, came out some years ago as a thoroughgoing defender of Luke's title to the rank of a first-class historian. The continent, however, seems comparatively unmoved. Now there is a change, and within the last few months, criticism has received a new surprise. 
and something not unlike a shock to its nerves. By the entrance into this field of controversy, of no less redoubtable a champion of the traditional view of Luke's authorship of the Gospel and the Acts than the brilliant and learned Professor A. Harnack of Berlin. To realize the significance of this fact, one has first to remember that the non-Lucan authorship of these two works was a point which criticism had entirely settled to its own satisfaction long ago. It was a settled result, as much so as the Old Testament J, E, and P. And next, to hear what Harnack has to say, not only on this particular question, but on the value of tradition and on modern methods of criticism in general. On the first point, it is worthwhile listening to a colleague of Harnack's, Professor Schurer, apropos of this same book, if only to note the reason he gives for rejecting the unity of the Acts vis-à-vis -vis its unhistoricity. The linguistic unity of the work, he says, has been already hitherto recognized, and still all representatives of a critical view of things were at one in holding that the author of the we source and the author of the Acts are to be distinguished because the latter, on account of the glaring marks of unhistoricity in his work, cannot be a companion of Paul. All representatives, at one, cannot be. How familiar are the phrases. But Harnack is not dismayed, and does not bait his breath in speaking of the critics. He reckons up the forces against him, and thus pictures the temper of the reigning school. In spite of the contradiction of Credner, B. Weiss, Klosterman, Jean, etc., the untenableness of the tradition of Luke's authorship is held to be so completely established that one hardly takes the trouble any longer to prove it, or even to give any attention to the arguments of opponents. Indeed, there seems no longer a willingness to recognize that such arguments exist. Euliker believes he is compelled to see in the ascription of the book to Luke only an adventurous wish. So quickly does criticism forget and in so partisan a spirit does it stiffen itself in its hypotheses. Cannot, he says again. Why not? Whence have we so sure knowledge of apostolic and post-apostolic times that we dare oppose our knowing to surely attested facts? He does not believe there ever was a separate we source at all. Harnett claims, accordingly, in his preface, I hope to have shown in the following pages that criticism has gone wrong, and that tradition is right. And he reminds his readers that ten years ago he told them, in the criticism of the sources of the oldest Christianity, we are in a movement backward to tradition. Something, he says, has certainly been won back in the fact that we are able to circumscribe more precisely the ground and the time of the oldest foundation-laying formation of tradition, by which not a few wild hypotheses are excluded. In the years 30 through 70, and indeed in Palestine, more exactly in Jerusalem, everything really came into being and happened, of which what followed was simply the unfolding. The third chapter of his book is headed, On the Pretended Impossibility of Vindicating the Third Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles for Luke. Harnick was never a believer in the Tubingen theory, and now he sees in it the fundamental error in New Testament criticism. All mistakes which have been made in New Testament criticism gather themselves to a focus in the criticism of the Acts of the Apostles, and the root error in Bauer's theory of the relations of Jewish and Gentile Christianity. One is reminded how certain scholars are now beginning to liken Wellhausen's dogma of the centralization of worship 
to this exploded dogma of the Bauer School. All this is very instructive. The cry of settled results, the proof of how far criticism, when most sure of itself, can go astray. The certainty that a change will come, and flouted tradition will reassert its rights. How the credit of books most assailed is by and by rehabilitated. We seem to hear the echoes of Old Testament discussion at every step, and are grateful for the encouragement the retrospect yields. Luke as historian. Yet Harnick, while assailing the critical views on Luke, is very cautious about committing himself to the entire historicity of the Book of Acts. He retains his liberty to pick what holes he pleases in the narrative on its historical side. His own demonstration of the Lucan authorship and of the soundness of the sources Luke employed will make it increasingly difficult for him to do this. Here, however, Professor Ramsey comes to the rescue, and on the question of fact is much the better judge. It was not the application of literary criticism which convinced Professor Ramsey that he had here a first-class historical source. His calling took him to Asia Minor on exploration war, and in the course of his researches he was so much impressed with the minute accuracy of the Book of Acts that it led him bit by bit to recast his whole opinion, and he has now become one of the ablest defenders of Luke's accuracy as a historian. In addition to his works on Paul, he has written a very able defense of the narrative of the nativity in the Gospel of Luke. Part 5 It would unduly extend this paper to go into many details, but one illustration may perhaps be given of the extreme carefulness of Luke's statements in Acts. I choose the example of his references to governors. It will be remembered that, in giving an account of Paul's visit to Cyprus, Luke introduces us to a Sergius Paulus, proconsul, of that island. Acts 13, 7. A proconsul was a yearly officer representing the Roman Senate, but Cyprus, in the time of Augustus, had been an imperial province governed by a different class of officials, proprietors. How, then, comes Luke to give the governor the title proconsul? An ancient historian solves the difficulty by telling us that Augustus handed Cyprus over to the Roman Senate in exchange for another province, so that, in the words of the historian, proconsuls began to be sent into that island also. The fact is further established by a coin representing a Cyprian proconsul of this very reign of Claudius. A similar, yet more singular proof of Luke's accuracy occurs a chapter or two further on. Luke calls Gallio proconsul of Achaia, Acts 18.12. Now Achaia had been governed by proconsuls, but Tiberius had made it an imperial province governed by proprietors, and so it remained till five or six years before the time of which Luke speaks, when the emperor Claudius restored the province to the senate. Then proconsuls began again, and Luke is perfectly exact. But may not the explanation be that Luke had the loose habit of calling all governors proconsuls and so got right by chance? No. For when we come to Thessalonica, we find Luke using another name altogether, the name Polytarchs. Acts 17, 6, 8. The title, singular to say, is found nowhere in literature but this chapter. But here, discovery comes in to supplement what history does not tell. An inscription is still legible on an arch of Thessalonica, which gives this very title to the magistrates of the place, informs us of their number, 
and mentions the names of some who bore the office not long before the days of Paul. The last example I take relates to Paul's stay in Malta. Here, Luke says were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius. Acts 28, 7. The word, translated chief man, is literally protos. Now, as has been ascertained from inscriptions found in the island, protos was the, probably, official title of the governor of Malta, and Luke designates him accordingly. Such instances of minute accuracy are worth a bushel of literary arguments in proof that the author of the Acts was a man well-versed in contemporary history, and had personal knowledge of the facts he wrote about. Thus much for Acts. I add one illustration, in conclusion, from the Gospel. Perhaps the strongest case of inaccuracy objectors have ever been able to urge against the Gospels is the mention of Quirinius in Luke 2, 2. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It is the same Luke who wrote the Acts who makes this statement, and the accuracy he shows on other occasions might warn us not to assume too hastily that he was in error here. Yet there did seem to be something like a mistake. It is quite true, as we know from Josephus, that Quirinius was governor of Syria, and that he conducted a census of Judea, but this was ten years later, about A.D. 6. It was indeed pointed out that Luke speaks of it as a first enrollment, and this of itself suggested that he knew of a second. Still, the difficulty was not satisfactorily solved. Meanwhile, in a German study, a learned author, Augustus W. Zunt, was working away at a book on Roman antiquities, in the course of which he was led to investigate the subject of the Syrian presidencies. His treatment was purely antiquarian, yet Zunt, working with his own materials, made the interesting discovery, in which most now acquiesce, that Quirinius must have been twice governor of Syria, once in B.C. 4-1, to and again in A.D. 6. This practically solved the difficulty, though it still put the first governorship a year too late if Christ's birth is correctly dated in the end of B.C. 5, for the census may well have been begun by his predecessor, in the end of his term of office, and completed under Quirinius, with whose name it is connected. Indeed, Professor Ramsey has now established the fact of such periodical enrollments and census papers from Egypt have actually been recovered. End of section 4. Read by Dan Coleman, Houston, Texas, October 4th, 2022.